And we just don't let people say what they feel or what they need because we want to attach an identity to that. And sometimes people just need to talk. Sometimes people need medication. Sometimes people need a break. Sometimes people need to be evaluated, but that doesn't mean that that's who they are. Welcome back to episode four of Real Men Do Cry. I'm your host, Jaron Deutsch. With me today is Seth Shelley. He had a TED Talk in December of 2017 called Men Need to Talk About Their Sexual Abuse. In the TED Talk, Seth shares his own very emotional and difficult story about sexual abuse he experienced as a child and asks men to open up about their personal stories as well. During our conversation, we discuss a number of topics surrounding mental health, finding your identity, and much more. Can you give the listeners a glimpse into your upbringing and the story that led you to sharing it with now almost 400,000 people? So I grew up in Southern Ontario, farming, agriculture community. You play hockey and you go to church and you ride dirt bikes and you farm and you pick tobacco and the farming immigrant lumberjack. And then I grew up in a big family. So that plays into the family dynamic. When I was a kid, so before I'd hit puberty, before I got into my adolescent years, my brother's friend sexually assaulted me over the course of a summer. In my brain, that 10, 11 year old brain, I'd never heard of this before. You don't hear about that stuff. You hear the word rape but I'd never heard about a family friend taking yeah. advantage of you in that way. So it was very isolating because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. And then the narrative of when a predator wants to take advantage of somebody, they, they shift the blame and the guilt. So I was told that it was my fault, that this is something that I did and brought on myself and that nobody would believe me. So it kind of put me in this isolating little corner of the room, this little box, right? I didn't know who to tell. I don't know how to tell anybody. I didn't even really know what to describe it as because I was very um, unfamiliar with it. And then I remember a couple years after that, I had a cousin who came out and said that she also had been sexually assaulted. I remember how the community gathered around her from an outside perspective, watching how people responded to that. Like, oh, well, her life's over. Her life's ruined. You know, she'll never be the same. If we're being honest, you probably hear that all the time. Or you see somebody in a certain lifestyle or situation and you say, well, it must be because they were abused. As if that's the only outcome that you can have in life if you've experienced abuse. Right. So that really solidified the fact that I wasn't going to say anything in my early teen years. I did not want to tell anybody, what do I want to be? And if I say that I'm this, I'm never not going to be that. And I just decided that that wasn't going to be how I wanted to live. Now, it wasn't like I made this big, brave, bold choice. You know, a lot of it just came out of conversations with close friends and certain behavior issues and behavioral things that were happening in my life that I really did want to get control of. So I'm about 16 or 17 at the time when I decide I'm actually going to come out and like tell people what happened and hopefully try and recapture some autonomy and not just live as a byproduct of these decisions that I didn't make. Cause that's what it felt like. I, I couldn't control my anger. I, I had self-harm thoughts. I, you know, I couldn't control what I wanted to do with my life because I felt like one of me wanted to just grow up and forget about it and do my own thing as if it never happened. And then the other part of me, wouldn't let myself forget that this happened and also believe the fact that this was my fault and I did this. So it's like really, really tormented state. Yeah. And then I, I had some friends walk me through that, talk me through that. And I decided that neither of those things were true. And so what was the truth then? So how do I find the truth? And that's been a process from then until now. I still haven't arrived, but I say in my TED talk about sharing, sharing the story, sharing what happened. I started to realize when I expressed it out loud, when I would say these things out loud, 
well, this is my fault, or I did this, or this is because of me. Thoughts are different than what we speak. And so we can think things and there's no external way to challenge it. But as soon as you say something that's not true, this is how we catch our kids lying all the time at our house. If they say the lie, we can see it on their face. We can hear it in their voice like, you're lying. And they know they're lying. But it's the idea that once you say it, it's like, wait a second, that's not true. And so I realized that in sharing my story and talking about it and developing, you know, a way to share with what happened, I was able to challenge a lot of the false narratives, which is really what my talk's about, living in a narrative that someone else has given you, breaking out of the bounds of what people say about you or what you should be, especially in referencing to victims of any kind of trauma, but in my case, sexual trauma. You're not who the predator says you were, like the person who assaulted you. You're not who they say you are. You're also not who everybody decides that you are. So that was a big thing for me in my talk. I was afraid to talk about it because I didn't want to talk about it. And then all of a sudden assume that identity of the victim and all the things that come with that. Now, I wouldn't say that I'm not a victim, but there's such a stigma behind what a victim is that people don't want to talk about it because I don't want to be seen as that. Like I want to be seen as having my own thoughts, my own dreams, my own passions, my own decisions, my own abilities that are separate from this trauma. Whereas a lot of times when the stigma behind being a victim attaches every decision to that. I didn't want this to define me. I didn't want this to be the defining moment of my life. This was something that happened to me in my life. And that's still how I look at it. But this was not the defining feature of who I am or who I was. It's something that happened to me. You know, it's something that happened to me, but it's not who I am. And so really, I end up my talk on that idea of sharing, asking people who they want to be, what they want to do with their life, their dreams, their passions not just assuming that because something happened to them that that is who, well, I get to decide who you are now. So the, I tell this to people all the time. We often live as if we're characters in someone else's narration of our life and that we just have to go along with what the narrator says and we forget that we're actually the narrator in our life. We're the ones telling the story. We're not just characters in somebody else's story. And so that gives a lot of freedom and a lot of decision abilities. And so the interesting part is up until the point I did my TED talk, I think I'd actually only told maybe 10 people, but I told enough people that had experienced similar things that it was like, somebody needs to talk about this and somebody needs to say something. And I'm grateful we live right now in this point in time that there are a few voices. There's a few men out there and there's more and more every day that are feeling comfortable like yourself with the show and talking about these issues and bringing this stuff up. That's how you get rid of the stigma. We often think we can get rid of the stigma if we just educate people. We tell people, oh, don't have a stigma on this. And I'm just going to tell you, don't have a stigma on it. That's not going to solve it. It comes from like the one-on-one -on -one conversations. And so my favorite piece of anecdotal evidence when it comes to you know, breaking down the stigma, breaking down the barriers is after I did my TED talk, I was playing hockey at the time in like a beer league. And I went into the locker room and almost exactly to what would break down to be the statistical number of guys for that group of people. So about one out of every five guys in the room, uh, they all said, hey, man, me too. That happened to me when I was a kid or this happened to me when I was a teenager and I've never told anybody. Wow. And it's like, that's all it takes talking about it. And you can see the load that it just lightens their burden, you know, just even being able to identify with somebody else, because that's a key issue with especially and this changing now, but especially with trauma towards young boys and why mine specifically says why men need to talk about their sexual you know, assault, sexual trauma is that it's not happening. There's still guys out there who are my age or older who still think in their brain because they've never challenged the narrative or they've never had the information or been able to process it, that they're the only one. They're the only person that this has happened to or that somehow they're unique in that sense that nobody else has ever experienced that. And that's just not true. 
And so we got to talk about it and somebody has to start the conversation. And if that's gotta be me, that's kind of what I say in my Ted talk. You know, I wish I could go back in time and start the conversation with my grandpa and instead of just having kind of an assumption of who he was, you know, oh, he was just a strong immigrant farmer. It's like, oh, it would be really great. It's too bad that he's passed away now, but it'd be really great to just find out what are his emotions? What did he think about this? How did he handle that? How did he deal with that? Because that's really the key to starting it all is just the conversations, the, the sharing of the story. I cannot believe 10 people had known about the story. And now there's what, almost 400,000 views of your TED talk on YouTube. I mean, yeah, that's kind of wild. And it, yeah. it's kind of surreal. To your point, you had just mentioned, have you seen any type of change in the stigma surrounding this and just people speaking up more, whether it's this show, the communities you're involved with, do you feel mm -hmm. like there has been a change for the better since your TED talk was posted three years ago? I think there has been a change. I think it's been positive. I mean, I get, I correspond with probably one person a week that reaches out through my, my website to email me or let me know that because of this, they've done this or taken this step. I think that's healthy. I think that's good. But I wish there's more people that want to have the conversation because just by me sharing doesn't solve other people's lives. It doesn't help them. What people need is that relationship. They need that interpersonal relationship. They need somebody that they can reach out to, that they can talk to, that they can spend time with because it's, it's a long process. And, you know, I'm still going through it. And there's still days that are worse than others and days that are better than others. I think that's one thing I encourage a lot of men that do talk to me is sharing is just the first step. It's a long process, sharing and sharing and sharing and rediscovering and taking those, those steps forward. But I do think there is a change and it is encouraging to see. You said in your TED talk, there was a larger issue in our society, which is broad sweeping narratives, replacing an individual's identity. Mm -hmm. There's a pressure to accept what our community says about us. And we're unable to truly listen to one another because we do not know how to share our own stories. And you did an incredible job doing that. Mm -hmm. And you said that we should be doing more of that. You lost your identity because of this exact thing. Do you mind mm -hmm. talking a little bit more about that? Politics is the best example of this, mm -hmm. that we just assume if somebody says one thing about themselves, I vote Democrat or I vote Republican. We, we, we know everything about them then. That's the sweeping narrative. I don't need to know anything else about you. I can picture what you eat, where you live, what you talk about, what you like, what you believe. And we accept that. We accept that as truth in our society. Politics is just an example. That's just how we treat people. And so where's the room for your identity, right? So like, where's the room for your identity when you are labeled with whatever it is and everyone knows the full story about you? And so the stigma behind the sexual trauma, when a guy or a boy says, well, I was raped as a kid. Oh, well... They must be weak. And we accept those. So the whole point of losing my identity in that was I'm at the age where I'm trying to find my identity amidst a town and a community and a family where I'm trying to figure out like, what is it that I want to do? Who am I? Like, what do I want to be? And then all of a sudden this identity is forced on you. And so the reason I didn't want to talk about it, that's not who I wanted to be. If I tell people that that's what happened to me, then I, that's who I am for the rest of my life. Yeah. I don't want to be that guy. I went pretty far the other way where I, I wanted to do everything and try everything. And I got really big into drama and acting. And it was like trying to be characters so that people could see who I was really. We like not having to know anything about somebody else. We don't want to have the conversations. We want to just decide. It's easier to just decide. So, you know, COVID-19, again, a great example. I can know everything about you, whether you wear a mask or don't wear a mask. I'll just know everything about you. I don't need to even ask you your name or your thoughts on it, or what you feel. I just know everything about you already. Yeah. And so those are big examples, like the politics, the COVID thing. But that's that's the danger. That's the slippery slope that we get comfortable making these broad sweeping assumptions. 
So in Canada, where I live, you know, we see that play out with some pretty dire implications towards First Nations people. We don't know anything about First Nations people. We don't need to. We already know the story. That's kind of the attitude. I don't need to know about their circumstance or their life. If I see that they're First Nations, I already know what they're like. And if we're not careful with that on those really broad, big sweeping ones, that's the pattern we form for our neighbor that lives next door or for the guy that we play hockey with or for our coworker, because we're so willing to just do that on these big picture things. And that's the danger in our society is that we do that on the big sweeping stuff. And that's what we're going to do to our neighbor. So even if you're my best friend, if we're not intentional about relationship and actually discovering who each other are, we'll just do that to each other anyways. And so that was, again, the fear. That's where my identity got lost as a kid and as a teenager. I know what's happened to me and I know what I think I want to become, but I don't even know what you see me as or my family sees me as. And then if I say this, it's over. Like, that's who I will be. I still have fears about that. Like, I still get nervous that, you know, in some ways, this is the sum total of my life is what happened to me. And I'll never be seen as anything other than that. So that's why I kind of reject some of the terminology on a personal level about being a victim or, you know, I just don't like that. It's not who I am. It's something that happened to me. And I say that a lot to people. I just had a conversation with a friend the other day about mental health stuff. And it's something you struggle with. It's something you deal with, but that's not who you are. Don't put that at the beginning of your name. The victim, Seth Shelley. No, no. I'm lots of things. It formed who I am for sure, but so did a lot of other things. So that's kind of how I look at it. Because that's just the danger. We get so complacent and just being like, well, I don't need to know anything else about you. And that isolates people. Right before I did my TED Talk, one of my close friends ended his life. And I had never really talked about having these struggles. And so when it happened, us as a group of friends and those who were closer to him, admittedly, I wasn't as close to him as others were. It was a shock. Why did he do that? No one knew. No one knew. I look back in hindsight and think, well, what was he supposed to say? Because as soon as you say, hey, I'm struggling with, you know, suicidal thoughts oh, you're just a depressed person and you need medication. It's like, well, maybe, or maybe he had some deep rooted trauma or maybe he was battling with uh, not being able to feel himself. And how do we help people outside of just throwing a label on them and putting them in the right box? And a lot of times with mental health stuff, because that's what comes out of sexual trauma, it's mental damage. I say this in a lot of my talks, like the physical abuse lasted, if we're going to count it up, maybe a couple hours total in my life. But the mental trauma is ongoing. It's, it's all the time. It's always there. You know, it's an open wound no matter. And so when people say, well, you're a survivor or you're I'm surviving. I don't know if I'm a survivor, but the fear is for these people that if you bring it up, you're just going to get put in the box. You might lose your job. You might lose your friends. What's your wife going to think? What's your parents going to think? And we just don't let people say what they feel or what they need because we want to attach an identity to that. And sometimes people just need to talk. Sometimes people need medication. Sometimes people need a break. Sometimes people need to be evaluated, but that doesn't mean that that's who they are. Sometimes I think we attach way too much in the identity piece. Let this be part of who somebody is, but don't make this who they are. That's what my abuser told me. And so that's where I see this crazy parallel is the guy who abused me told me that this is who I was, right? And then when you go to get help, they tell you, well, this is who you are. And you're like, ah, I'm tired of being told. Yeah who I am. Like I'm tired of being told by somebody else who I am and what that means for me. Like, let me decide, you know, help me, but don't tell me. And I know lots anecdotally, again, I know lots of guys that have the same thoughts. I don't want anybody telling me that I'm messed up. You're not messed up. You know, you had something bad happen to you. That's not your fault. And we're going to deal with that, but that's not the sum total of your life. The point you made, it's not how you're feeling right now or what you have experienced. that defines who you are. Mm -hmm how do you think society's ideas of masculinity 
prevent men from opening up? Again, I would say it's the polarity between the two. Harry Styles posts, uh, he's on Vogue wearing, I didn't even see it, but I think he's wearing a dress or something. And that's the picture of masculinity. And then Candace Owens comes out and says, well, we need manly men and we don't. And again, it's just this polarized thing of what makes a man a man? What gives me my masculinity? So many different things. I have two boys, I have two sons and I have two daughters. And we try really hard to the whole like gender stereotype stuff. We kind of stay away from that to some degree. I believe that there's things that make my boys, you know, I, I can demonstrate masculinity to them and my wife can demonstrate femininity, but I also think it crosses over at times. And so the idea that, again, we just like to have it in its own lane. The whole masculinity piece for me is I feel like I'm a, a masculine man. I have a beard, I hunt, I fish, I do all those masculine things, cry a lot. You know, I'm not saying that that doesn't make you masculine. I like to paint. I like to sew. It's again, the idea of like self-determination, like let somebody decide for themselves what they want to participate in and how masculine or unmasculine or whatever you want to call it. I really value individualism. I think the individual is the most important thing that we lose sight of when we even use words like, you know, masculinity, because the thing that's attached to that is again, this sweeping narrative of what it is to be masculine or the converse of what it is to not be masculine. And we, we lose the individual, we lose the person. And I want to know the person. I wanna know you, I want you to know me. I want you to see all the things that I like and not attach a label or something to that. And I think the fear again is the slippery slope of, I just wanna be able to define you really easily. So if you could just do these things, then I don't have to know anything about you. I think the pressure there is social media, the internet. We, we're yep. trying to know so many people we want to know everybody. We want to have 1500 people on our Instagram. And to do that, you do have to boil everybody down to the most common denominator. And then you actually never get to know anybody. So get to know your neighbor, get to know your, your kids, your friends. I don't even think you'll have conversations about masculinity or all that stuff. But that is the fear, right? The fear for most people is they're not seen outside of the parameters of the societal standard. And so they don't know how to go outside of that. So you will see people in looking for their own identity and maybe not understanding what identity even is. Yeah, they will try and check all those boxes because they feel like, well, that's the only way I'm seen. And so that's where the whole storytelling component of like what I, what I really push. And I'm, I, I want to know your story more than I want to know your label. Like, I, I want to know your story more than how you identify. I don't care about those things. Not that I don't care in a dismissive way, but I don't want to just know where you fit on the piece of paper, what box I can check for you. I want to know you. Yeah. What was your childhood like? What do you like to do? What was your favorite? What's your favorite memory? So I often ask people when we're driving in a car, I'm getting to know people. I'll play a game like, you know, if you could do, if you'd live anywhere in the world, but not here, where would you live and why? If you could have any other job and not your same job, what would it be and why? Get to know people. So that's part of it. I don't know if I answered the question or not, but you did. Yeah. No, the issue with people being quick to label, jumping to assumptions based off how they view the world. Mm -hmm. That's the issue. And I think that if there are more people like Seth Shelley, we would be in a better place. But well, I, but I perfect. do think that we are going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. I want to end with two questions. One, who am I? Two, who do I want to become? Your community's expectations and the sexual abuse uh, you experienced were determining who you were becoming. Can you talk about the 
Seth of today, how you took control of your own life, regained your identity and made it possible for you to heal, as well as your work as a pastor and how you've helped young people who have dealt with similar experiences. The who am I component it comes down to autonomy, right? The control over what happened in my own physical body it really does affect your mental autonomy, like your thought life and what you think. And I see that play over time and time again. So it really is about lassoing that in your brain, capturing that part of you. Like you have to ask yourself the question, who am I? Am I this? Because I'm not. I like open-ended statements. So instead of saying, how did I heal? It's like, how am I healing? You know, yeah. how did I overcome? How am I overcoming? Because it is a process. That is a dangerous part with the whole identity component of who am I and who am I becoming is that if there is no finish line. I'll deal with this till the day I die. So I think sometimes we set false summits for people. If you just do this and this and this, you'll be fine. And then three years later, these people are still dealing with it and like, well, I must, there must be something wrong with me. I'm not fine. So we're not supposed to be fine. It's about a process of carrying this with you, but not letting it define you. So that whole who am I part for me as a kid, it was, am I part of this family? Am I part of this community? Am I the one who actually wanted this? Am I the one who caused this? Am I at fault? Am I the victim or am I the perpetrator? Because that's the confusing part. That's what predators do. They, they blame you. They shift the blame and the guilt just on a base level, rooting myself in who I was. And that didn't happen then. That happened years later. Like, this is who I am. And so from that starting point, who am I going to become? Like, who am I becoming? You know, I don't know if you ever heard the adage, hurting people hurt people. It's a circle of abuse and victim eventually becomes the perpetrator. And that's, that's another thing that you hear a lot. That's not who I want to become. I don't want to become somebody who hurts people because I'm hurting. And not necessarily a sexual assault, but like, I don't want to be an angry person like I was. I don't want to be a cutting person. I don't want to be a judgmental person. I want to be somebody that doesn't hurt people. So that's who I want to become. And then let that transform into who am I coming? And so that's kind of the advice that I give when I'm working with students through my church ministry or with adults or with families or with couples when I'm doing marriage counseling. It's the idea of you have to start from somewhere. Like you have to know who you are and what you did and what you didn't do. And one of my friends always says, like, always apologize for what you've done. But don't apologize for what you haven't. You have to understand that, especially when you're talking to kids or adults who have been sexually assaulted, you didn't do this. Somebody else did this. This is not your fault. You didn't do this. So working from there, who are we going to become? Are we going to become people that find healing? Are we going to become people that become advocates? Or are we going to become people that are angry and bitter? If I didn't make a change in my life in my teenage years, I'd probably be dead. I probably would have killed myself by now. I don't know how I knew that. Like foresight, maybe good friends. But I could see the path I was on was destructive, self-destructive. And because I didn't want to hurt other people, I took it out on myself. I wanted to hurt myself. I thought yeah. that I deserved it as some sort of punishment. So I have a lot of compassion and empathy for people that struggle with suicide or have committed suicide because I can, in some ways, without knowing all of their circumstances, relate to the fact that there's lots of different reasons why people make those decisions. But that's what it was. I need to become something different. Right now, I am a victim. Who am I? I am a victim. I'm not the perpetrator. I'm the victim. I don't want to stay there because if I stay there, it's not going to be good. I'll have self-pity, you know, all that stuff, bad behaviors. And I think a lot of people are stuck there. Maybe there's people listening right now that have identified that, yeah, I know who I am. I'm the victim. And they've never asked the question, but who am I becoming? And so the more I become, the less the victimhood part of my life dominates. Every guy I've talked to that's shared about sexual abuse, they always say, and it's the same, I thought the same thing. When I get older, I'll forget about this. I'll just grow up and I'll get a job and I'll buy a truck and do all the things an adult should do. And then I won't even remember this. It won't even be a part of my life. It's over. 
And I just need to put more time in between me and the, the moment. You do that without the realization that, yeah, the moment's over, but the mental trauma is there. So you have to identify it and then you have to decide to do something about it. Totally. Obviously, you know, you need a lot of courage to overcome, mm -hmm. but on top of that, you need a lot of self-awareness. A lot of what you're mm -hmm. talking about, if people aren't self-aware, then it's, it's impossible to get out of that mindset. And yeah, thankfully for, sure. for you, you had a lot of both. I had two good friends that were good listeners and they were also good storytellers. The key to self-awareness is listening to other people. To become a very good self-aware person is to become a good active listener. And if you can actively listen to someone else share their story, you learn how to start sharing your own story, which means you start up to becoming self-aware to even understand what your own story is. If someone's out there listening like, well, how do I become more self-aware? Start listening to other people, not even over the internet. Start listening to other people's stories and learning how to ask those open-ended questions to somebody else so you can turn that on yourself and ask yourself those questions because you have to practice it. We do what we practice. And if we don't ever practice it, we'll never know how to do it for ourselves. And then we'll say, well, I want to be more self-aware. So well, how do you do that? I don't know. So we got to listen to yourself. So I always tell people to journal, to write it out first and yeah. foremost, put pen to paper, write it out, invite somebody over with the sole intention of just actively listening to them share. It doesn't mean you don't talk, but you know, like you're actively listening because listening isn't waiting for your turn to talk or how you can make it about you. And then you'll start to realize that, oh, all the things that I learned about that person, I need to learn those about me and, and learn how to share those in the same way, which is a great opportunity I have in my profession as a pastor. I do a lot of talking and I do a lot of listening. So admittedly, it's a little easier for someone like me, I guess. But there's a lot of courage in the guy that's out there on a job site or working in the oil field who asks the person he's working with an open question and actively listens. Like there's just as much courage there as there is for me to get up on a stage and, and do the same thing. Listening so important to others yeah. and to yourself. Mm -hmm. Where can everyone find you? Right now I have a Facebook page and a website. Okay. So both of them are just Seth Shelley. So Seth Shelley, S-H-E-L-L-E-Y. That's how you can find me on Facebook. And then my website is just SethShelley.com. I answer every email I get. So if someone emails me and wants to share their story or talk, I'm down for that. I'm So I try my best to respond to anybody who wants to reach out. And it's a good step sometimes because I'm a safe step. You might not know me. And so it's easy for you to tell me over an email, hey, this happened to me when I was a kid. And it's safe and it's a great, it's a great first step yep. in starting to share. So yeah, that's those are the two areas. Thanks so much. No problem. Thank you for listening to Real Men Do Cry. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and share with anyone who may need to hear it. Follow at RMDC underscore pod on Instagram to stay up to date with the podcast. I appreciate you tuning in and I'll see you guys next week.